Welcome to The Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills, where we delve into the lessons from life in the lockdown, from those that are living it, learning from it, and leading organizations through it. Now, my guest today is Dame Helena Morrissey. She's got an all-star track record working in the city, founding the 30% Club, and even finding time to write a book, A Good Time to Be a Girl. Now, that's led the Daily Telegraph to dub her as the unofficial queen of the city. Now, all I can promise you today is that we're going to have a crown jewel of an interview. Helena, welcome to The Changemakers. A pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you for having me on. What does an unofficial queen do? Perhaps we should have a coronation of ideas. I'm not worthy. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the real queen, of course. And the idea of anyone being queen is uh, not allowed because she's just a (laughs) one-off. She is, she is a one-off, an absolutely wonderful one-off. Now, we are going through, I mean, talking of one-offs, I mean, we're going through the most extraordinary chapter of our national and global and, I guess, personal stories in terms of living through this COVID-19 public health emergency and living through life in, in a lockdown. Just your opening thoughts on where things are right now. Well, on a on a general level, I think, you know, everything has changed. And we're often talking in hyperbole and businesses and people are predicting things and coming up with outlandish ideas. And right now we're living and breathing uh, one of those real extreme moments. I think everything has changed and it has changed for good. I think uh, the things we're learning through this crisis, we will not be able to unsee them. And we will take from it, I hope, uh, lots of you know, lots of lessons and lots of um, things that we've been working on for so many years that have been incremental change, really sluggish, very frustrating. Suddenly, we're going to see breakthroughs. Obviously, there are huge disasters, huge tragedies, both health and wealth. But I do think there are huge lessons to be learned as well. In terms of how you see the UK finding its way through this, I mean, on so many levels, I mean, you referred to, I mean, you know, that there is national tragedy at play in terms of death and illness um, on the one hand, um, huge economic and social disruption on the other. Yet many of the people I speak to in in business still somehow find a way to be optimistic and hopeful about finding that way forward. Is, is, Is that you? It is. I mean, I think, to be honest, it's really hard to succeed at anything Um, or to get anywhere in life if you're not somewhat optimistic. I mean, you have to acknowledge the problems, but if you let the fear of what might go wrong put you off from trying anything, obviously none of us would get anywhere. So I think a lot of business people are intrinsically built like that. And um, I think at the moment it's testing us. There are days when I think everyone feels incredibly frustrated by, by lockdown. Right now we're recording and it's pouring with rain. Um, it's been lovely weather lately, but you know, this today it feels. We could have said anything. We could have said it was stunning. Yeah, today it feels claustrophobic. But even then, I think. Um, I mean, I've been hugely impressed and struck by the resilience of people, the adaptability of people. You know, things that would have been inconceivable at the start of this year, when we were all celebrating the start of a new decade, talking about the next Roaring Twenties. This was not Roaring Twenties. Mm. But um, maybe it'll roll back. But at present, no. we're obviously, you know, we it, life is not going the way we'd expected. And yet people are coming up with ideas, coming up with thoughts about the way forward and adapting their daily lives. Mm. But of course, the last Roaring Twenties started with Spanish flu. It started 
in a remarkably similar way in terms of a global tragedy. Well, it didn't end well either. But but there was a there was there was some part. Yeah, a bit in the middle. Everyone went Uh, dancing and. I mean, I mean, you said that. um, um, Yeah, maybe maybe let's come back to 2020. We probably know more about that than 1920. I mean, but you you talked about you know sort of business people being intrinsically positive in terms of they're, they're built like that. I think you said. If you're not built like that, if you're going through this at the moment and, you know, it's frankly a nightmare, what's your advice? What's the coping mechanisms that that you see around you or maybe the things that you're practicing that you you share? Well, some of the things, I mean, if people are on their own, I think that must be incredibly difficult. Um, I was sort of FaceTiming with somebody yesterday who's completely on her own. And she said she'd gone off to the park just to see other people. She wasn't talking to them. She wasn't going up to them and so forth. And that was her coping mechanism, just a feeling of not being uh, in a world of one person. And I think that's quite a horrific thought. Uh, We've forgotten, you know, people aren't touching each other, cuddling, you know, hugging each other in a way that we just sort of hug friends. And I think that's awful. Um, I don't suffer from that particular problem in my own household because there are 13 of us Good. under one roof. As you say, you, you're, that, I mean, you should have, sort of but, <laughs> for, for listeners, I mean, this is the ultimate social distancing challenge. I mean, just give us a sense of your, of, of the family, the family tribe. So I have nine children and eight of them uh, aged from 11 to 25 are with us at present. My eldest two children are married. So the eldest one with us, the 25 year old, has also brought in the house her, her, her husband and two children aged two and six months. So, um, yeah. It's like feeding a full on football squad. I mean, it is. A- I mean, yeah, there's a. It's a banquet every meal. And uh, obviously, when they were rationing products at the supermarket, that was a particular challenge. We had to eat whole chickens because you couldn't buy enough beef burgers, you know. But anyways, um, that's so we we slightly crave, you know, peace and quiet. But I'd, I I might admit, I, I mean, we're the lucky ones with a lovely family life, a great opportunity through this to reset family life, mm. which is very important to us. But I, my other coping thing that I just want to touch on is that I'm, I'm a terrible to-do list person. Um, I don't like that characteristic in myself, but I know I love to kind of control what my life is like by writing lists each day and crossing them off. What's the to-do list in a crisis? <laughs> so you see, I've learned that actually having a to-do list is terribly stress-making because most of the things that you plan on doing can't be done for whatever reason. And um, so I have learned in the first time in my 54 years of existence, well, I suppose as a toddler, I didn't keep a to-do list, but pretty early on in my life, I am no longer having a to-do list because I have to go with the flow and accept that the day will um, evolve a little bit differently, which is a great lesson more, for me. And more unstructured, right? And, and you exactly. talked about the kind of resetting of family life. Now, obviously, you know, many, many listeners will, will know you more for um, your city career um, your business career, your public life career, but in terms of you know you're you're one of I, I guess many business people that are resetting family life suddenly finding out different things that they haven't perhaps experienced for many years as of being together doing things in in a, in a kind of twenty four seven way. How's that all? How's that all going for you personally? What what are the kind of the high? I mean, I, I, you could all be highs, I don't know, but are there any lows as well? What's how's the experience? Well, Definitely on balance, it's a big positive because I think often with our normal life, as it once was anyway, uh, might never go back to that. Um, We were all in a big hurry. 
and everybody was running around, whether they were school children with lots of after school activities, people at university could hardly even fit in the, the work and the social life. And then obviously parents, you know, running around working and so forth. Everything was hurried and we were snatching time together. And of course, the opposite is true now. Everybody is obviously in one place. We are taking leisurely walks, playing silly games, uh, choosing a film to watch each evening. And that feels really luxurious and actually very... Uh, it's a, I used the word reset before, but I do think it resets a sense of togetherness as a family and and also just the realisation that for many years we've been shortchanging our family relationships. Even if we've tried to make time to eat together and so forth, it's it's been in the context of having... And, and, and I, th- I think shortchanging is a great way of describing it. I mean, in terms of how that kind of shortchanging doesn't come back when things return... I mean, do you, do you get a sense that business as usual is perhaps a worry for many people? Or do you think business as usual, certainly as we have experienced it before, has gone? Well, I think a lot of people are desperate to get back to anything, something as close as business as usual, just because they feel afraid um, and very uncertain. And that's completely understandable. I really don't think it will go back that way. I think cities will be particularly challenged for some time to come because people have realized actually a lot of the time we spend traveling around on public transport, again, in big crowds and so forth, that will be very appealing for quite some time, I think. There are those. Um, I run something or chair something called the Diversity Project for the investment industry, And we have about 70 firms, our members, and we've been running a weekly Ask Me Anything series. I've done mental health a couple of times, working families, gender issues. And the questions that we're asked, some of them are very much around, you know, I love working from home. This is really working well for me in my life now. Will my employer be prepared to consider it going forward? I think the answer is yes to that. I think a lot of employers are realizing, you know, they The ways of working had become very old fashioned. We don't need to work Mm. in the same office all the time. So I think I think that people have split themselves, but businesses are very alert to thinking differently now. Do do you think we will emerge from this in a kinder frame of mind? I mean, you know, given your work as a campaigner for fairness, for diversity, when you look at, you know, so much of what you've tried to do with the 30 percent club, do you think that becomes easier now? Or do you think that there's still a challenge? Uh, There's still a challenge, but it becomes so much easier. I think we've leapfrogged over, you know, the work, the pace of change that we were having. Um, Give example, you know, men as well as women are obviously working from home now. The highest job CEOs, they're working a lot at home along with secretaries and so forth, administrative assistants. Everybody is in the same boat. And I think it's, it's exposing people who never did anything on the domestic front to that side of life. A lot of them are enjoying it. And I think that we are moving much quicker now towards more equal lives. I think that the, um, you know, a lot of the gender stereotypes and so forth have been incredibly hard to break down, partly because we've been squeezing women into old fashioned ways of working that didn't really work. Well, haven't really worked for men either. And now we, we've got that catalyst for change. Um, it's not what mm. I would like to have happened, of course, um, but it is happening. I mean, the, the phrase business as a force for good, I mean, it's been banded around mm. um, for some time in terms of the, I guess, the disproportionate contribution that powerful companies should make, can make, um, whether it's resources, whether it's innovation. When you look at the response to the crisis, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to government, but when you look at um, your colleagues in business, 
do you get a sense that they're stepping up in the way that the world needs them to right now? Well, again, not everybody is in the same place, obviously, but the best, certainly that expression you use about more humanity, um, being kinder, more focused on the well-being of people and very conscious. You could argue it, it maybe have been cynical reasons in the start um, of need to be seen to be doing the right thing, whether it's on furloughing, supporting the NHS, fundraising for that. I'm seeing a lot more emphasis at the top of businesses on on the need to look after their employees and to look after their communities. And I say that as someone who's seen um, people talk a good talk and not really deliver. And I'm encouraged by what I see. I, I also think, and this is a funny thing, because in a remote working environment, we're actually getting to know our colleagues better. Hmm. We are having a glimpse I, I, into their homes, a glimpse into their family life. Um, I was actually on a call yesterday, which involved Secretary of State Liz Truss and her daughter walked into the Cool. You know, I mean, that would have never happened. She, she introduced her. She said, oh, this is happening. Did, by she, you know? did she introduce I mean, any policy ideas? That's what we 5, want to know. 5,000 uh, listeners on this call or whatever. I was on this panel with her. And, um, you know, I thought that would have never happened. People would have never let down their guard. And it was a lovely mm. moment. And I suppose people are also going to remember how organisations behave right now. So I suppose as well as the, the vignettes and the snapshots of, of, of humanity coming through, I suppose... You know, there are going to be long memories on a on a situation like this in terms of well, well, what happened when leaders were faced with the ultimate moment of challenge? How does a good leader respond in that respect, do you think? Well, I've seen some great leadership through this. Um, and I have to declare an interest because I'm a governor at Eton College. And a lot of people would think that's an odd place to start my answer to this question. But I've seen them immediately think, well, what could we do as a very privileged, very wealthy organisation to improve education across the country, to open up our, our offerings on um, online courses and so forth for uh, children in state schools that might be suffering from a, a lack of education at present. And I've seen them immediately think they've taken a bold step. They said it's all for free, uh, open doors. I mean, what they've had is 1,200 schools at the last count anyway, uh, sign up or express interest, 100,000 state school pupils now having access to these courses. And they just did it instantly. So it's rapid. Mm. It was with the sureness of um, belief that this was something that they should do. And there was no hesitation that this was something they'd invested, you know, millions of pounds in and it was all supposed to be a commercial venture. They just said, this is what the nation needs. We can help in this way. And that is a huge generosity of spirit uh, that I have seen in other leaders as well. But that's just one example. Mm. Let's talk to another type of leader or political leaders. When you look at the the political response to COVID across, I guess, the the spectrum and the span of this, this crisis. Um, what marks out of 10 would you give the government, do you think? Um, I'm, I'm going to give them a seven, actually. I think on the economics, they've been very good, um, I think. I mean, I was there with them. Um, so on, stri on Strictly, that's quite a good score. Seven, you you know. yes. <laughs> so I, um, I think it was about the day before lockdown when the uh, Chancellor um, was giving the budget and then came into the city to... Uh, answer questions at um and actually the original host sort of said we can't do it anymore because they were not uh, accepting sort of big events at that point so it was literally in the last sort of minutes or two and it was a very sure-footed um again very sort of uh, bold courageous we're going to do whatever it takes on the nhs funding on uh furloughing and so forth um obviously we might not have the wherewithal to do whatever it takes 
but the intent has been there. And I think that has been very good. I think on um, at the moment, the trouble, why they're not getting a higher score for me, is I think there do seem to be a lot of muddle about where we go next with the lockdown. Mm. Um, and I and I sympathise with it, but there does need to be... I was going to say, is, is, isn't that the, the... I mean, that's the question that has no good answer, isn't it? Well... A- until we have a vaccine or a, or a clearer way of treating this. Well, obviously, New Zealand has now just opened up. We've got a very different response in Sweden. We've mm. got other countries who are now, France, et cetera, th- going to open schools. So I think that, I mean, I'm a fan of Gerard Lyon's traffic light idea that there are, we've got to go from where we are today to fully open in a fairly gradual way with sort of go, no go zones. And I think the country would respond, people would respond very well to a clear set of milestones, even if there was a point where people say, okay, at this point, if infection rates are rising again, if deaths are obviously rising again, then we will go back again. Mm. People just I, need some I, hope, I, I think. I mean, I mean, I mean, some of the, you know, some some of the sort of, um, I guess, pundits have have characterised this sort of clamour to reopen the economy as being, you know, a, a socially irresponsible thing to do because of the the danger that's still at hand. I mean. How do you get that that balance, do you think? I mean, I get the traffic lights, but in terms of that hugely sort of difficult balancing act, but that's you could the get point. it there dreadfully yeah. wrong, couldn't you, but as that's well? The point. It is a balancing act. So at the moment, we've been saying the virus is the only enemy, effectively, in the strategy that's been adopted. And obviously, that with good reason, uh, clearly, we were losing the battle on that one. But obviously, people are also suffering mental health issues, Domestic mm. abuse calls have gone up by 700% during the coronavirus lockdown to certain charities. We know that people will struggle financially in a very major way if it carries on indefinitely. So there does have to be something of a of a wargaming around this and right. different permutations. But, but some would also say, but we're not winning that battle against the virus either. So in terms of, I mean, can you fight this war on two fronts where you may well have the continuation of the virus um, living alongside this effort to reopen the economy? Well, I think that is what's expected. I think if we wait for a vaccine, there may never be a vaccine. We we can't take the risk of, you know, and in some ways funding or stealing from the future of young people today by protecting older people, which on balance, or, or people with health issues, which obviously need protecting. But this idea of that we have a gradual reopening that certain members of the population, certain groups uh, stay isolated for longer. Um, I think it seems very sensible. I, I do understand the points about, you know, we don't want to, you know, lose the, the war. We win the battle, but we lose mm, the war. But, and um, it would be depressing if we had a second lockdown. So it's but, a fine it, act. But, but if, you, if you look at the practicality of some of that, I mean, you know, many of the people that you've worked with in the city as FTSE, you know, sort of 250 chairman, I mean, a lot of those people fall into that category of, you know, 65, 70 plus. They're exactly the sort of people that we, we can't expect to see back in the front line very soon, can we? No, so maybe that again changes the dynamic a little bit. I think we have, as I said, oh, we've mastered the working from home situation. Apparently it takes two months to really form a new habit, but I think we've all felt we've achieved that a bit ahead of schedule. And um, I, I think that there will be a mix of working remotely and uh, meetings will be very slow to open up. But I also think that obviously towns and villages, cities are ghost towns at the moment. And that is decimating a, a lot of businesses. This has a, a health implication as well. 
on many levels. Mm. And I don't have, you know, I'm not the prime minister. I don't have to make the decision, but I do think we need a kind of uh, a gradual reopening plan at some point. And people would also probably stay at home longer if they knew that there was light at the end of the tunnel. Danger will be people would just sort of lose the plot and decide they're just going out. So, so light at the end of the, the, the tunnel, we've got, a, we've got a minute or so left. In terms of that kind of how you see that future world shaping up, the reasons to be positive about that. Give us your, your final thoughts, Helena, on, on that. So my final thoughts, as I said earlier, everything has changed. I think there will be a, not just an acceptance, but encouraging of different ways of working once the coronavirus crisis has, has passed. I think we've developed more humanity and solidarity as a consequence of this crisis. We are literally all in it together. Final point is I would share is that it's been so wonderful to see how people come together when it's Thursday evening at eight o'clock. It's our bins night. So not the most glamorous moment in our week, but the children literally fight for putting out the bins because we, our house is a little bit remote, but they'll always be fighting. A well-trained, a well-trained group of kids. <laughs> the incentive to join in the clap in with more people around. Uh, we ring, we got a sort of big bell. Oh, of course, the, the Thursday night. So it's a moment where everybody rushes out the door because we can see all our neighbours and everyone comes out at the same time. Mm. And, and, um, and I think, I think that's going to be one of the most, yeah. it's going to be one of the most poignant things to remember those Thursday night classes. It's just how emotional we all feel about this, how committed, I guess. Well, and it's brought the country together. We were very divided before. Brexit, politics, you know, we had been uh, struggling to see what we agreed on. This has brought us together, albeit in an unfortunate way. Well, we're going to have to end that together. I mean, I'm, we, we got to the, the the dying seconds of this interview without Brexit, but maybe that's a tee up for an, another time. But absolutely wonderful um, to have your change makers, Helena. I, I think, you know, the message today has been that everything has changed and we can expect very different times ahead. And I guess the opportunity here is to think positively about it and we're going to be back with more change and more stories of change through the change maker series with ideas about the shape of things to come